Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Thanks for joining us and Happy New Year. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Dr. Ira Chasnoff. Dr. Chasnoff is an award-winning author, researcher, lecturer, and president of NTI Upstream and a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. Dr. Chasnoff is one of the nation's leading researchers in the field of child development and the effects of maternal alcohol and drug use on the newborn infant, child, and adolescent. Dr. Chasnoff led the development and operation of a laboratory preschool classroom to develop specific interventions for children who were prenatally exposed to alcohol and other drugs and developed a model Head Start family service for children and their families at risk from drugs and from the drug-seeking environment. In addition, Dr. Chasnoff directed one of the five national sites conducting research into the integration of behavioral health interventions into primary health care services for high-risk children and their families through this project studied the impact of concurrent planning on permanency placement for children in the foster care system. Since 2002, Dr. Chasnoff has been leading cutting-edge research into innovative treatment for children with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and served as principal investigator for the development of a treatment intervention that has been recognized as an evidence-based model of therapy for children with FASD. The title of today's episode is Guided Growth a conversation with Dr. Ira Chasnoff. So welcome to 2021. We are FASD Hope, and we are thrilled to be starting the new year with someone who I have a tremendous amount of respect and um, admiration for. He has made so many contributions in the field of FASD and how the brain works and, and just has been such a beacon of education for parents and professionals in the FASD community. I have purchased his new book, Guided Growth. This book is on our FASD Hope website. You can find it under the reading list. So the author I'm speaking of is Dr. Ira Chasnoff. Dr. Chasnoff, welcome to FASD Hope. Thanks very much, Natalie. Many of us in the FASD community, like I said, we have so much respect for you and just all of the work that you've done. What sparked your interest in starting to work with individuals and families affected by FASD? Well, it uh, goes back to when I was very young, actually. I was uh, in pediatric practice. I'm a pediatrician. And I was noticing that some children were different than other children. They weren't uh, the typical developmental trajectories we were seeing. Uh, At the same time, I began to volunteer down at the hospital uh, and was running a developmental clinic for newborns coming out of the neonatal ICU. 
And while I was doing that, I found there were a number of babies I was seeing that uh, had been born to mothers who had had no prenatal care. Uh, the mothers went home right after delivery and the baby stayed in the neonatal ICU for six, eight weeks. And as I began to look at their records, uh, I found that uh, they had all been born to mothers who had used a variety of drugs, mainly opiates like heroin and alcohol. And so I went to the hospital administration and uh, said, you know, the developmental clinic is going well. It doesn't really need me anymore. Uh, could I start a new clinic for babies whose mothers have used drugs and alcohol? And they thought I was crazy that this was long before anybody had ever recognized these issues. Uh, so back in 1973, 74, uh, we opened the first clinic for pregnant women who were using drugs and alcohol. Uh, I got a couple of my obstetric friends to deliver the prenatal care. Uh, I gathered some drug treatment experts around us who pr provided alcohol and drug treatment. And then I did the pediatric care. And so nobody knew anything about these children at that time. And we began following them and then began publishing our observations about the children. Uh, so back in 1976, 77, uh, some of our first papers came out describing children who had been born to mothers who used drugs and alcohol. And it just grew from there until by 1990, I gave up my private pediatric practice and uh, opened a program full-time working with children exposed to drugs and alcohol. And so it's just grown from there. And just looking over the many contributions you've made to the FASD community, I'm so impressed. Your work with adolescents, your work with brain strategies and learning and whatnot. I was fortunate to have been a participant in a recent webinar you did for Mike and Kristen Berry of Honestly Adoption. And that really sparked me into not only to purchase guided growth, but also just to talk to you about the many things that you explained uh, during that webinar and how you made brain functioning, especially when the brain has been affected by alcohol and drugs, you make that so tangible for us parents and caregivers. So let's talk about statistics because during okay. that webinar, you'd mentioned some, some statistics that I know that we in the FASD community are aware of, but I think there are many people out there that are not aware of. For example, statistics about women who use alcohol and other substances, statistics about ADHD versus FASD, general statistics that you can share with our audience. A lot of our work is working with communities and states in developing systems uh, that identify women who are using drugs and alcohol during pregnancy. Because what we've shown in our research and what others have shown is if you identify the pregnant woman, for example, who's using alcohol during the pregnancy, and you get her off her alcohol by third trimester, the last three months of pregnancy, you raise the IQ of the child, uh, which is pretty phenomenal. That's an amazing statistic. Wow. So that's why a lot of our work is on the prenatal side. Now, how many women use alcohol and drugs? In our national studies, we're finding on average state to state, it's about 25 to 30% of pregnancies have some level of alcohol or drug use. Now, of course, the immediate 
pushback to that is people say, oh, well, it's only a little bit of alcohol. But here's what we know from research. No amount of alcohol is safe to use during pregnancy at any point during the pregnancy in any amount during the pregnancy. That's why it's so important uh, that we understand that there are a lot of children out there uh, being exposed. Now, the other thing that, that adoptive and foster parents come up against all the time is they will take a child into their home and they're told, for example, the mother used heroin or methamphetamine. And so that's all the information they get. When in reality, again, what the data show us is that among women who use uh, methamphetamine, opiates, cocaine, you name the illegal drug, a good 85% of them are also using alcohol. By far the most common pattern of drug use uh, in pregnancy is polydrug use. So some parents will say, well, I read about drugs during pregnancy and it, it seems like we can deal with that. And just so she was, that, you know, our child wasn't exposed to alcohol, when in reality, most likely the child was. We recently published a study out of Iowa that showed that the majority of pediatricians would report a baby whose mother used illegal drugs during the pregnancy, but would not report a child whose mother used alcohol during the pregnancy. And uh, alcohol, of course, is a huge player in, in all of these issues. So uh, that, that's the kind of information that I want adoptive parents to know about right away. And when I heard that in that webinar, that was just startling to hear that. We hear it and to think that there are so many children and teens and adults who have been affected and whose caregivers, whose family members thought that, you know, it was just exposure to certain substances when in fact, the majority of the time it's polysubstance. So talking about those statistics, Dr. Chasnoff, why do you think it's so important for not only parents and caregivers to be educated about these statistics, but for those professionals, those pediatricians, those developmental professionals who are working with these children, why do they need to know this information as well? I think the importance of the information uh, goes back to a study that we did, uh, we published uh, about two years ago now. And what we did is we took a large population of children in our clinic. I ran a, a large children's behavioral health clinic and took about 3000 children and did sampling from them and looked at what diagnoses they came to us with so when they were referred for behavior problems to our clinic, what diagnoses were they carrying? What medications were they on? We did our full evaluation and then looked at the diagnosis we came up with. And what we found that among all of the children that we diagnosed within the fetal alcohol spectrum, 85.6% had been misdiagnosed. Now think about that. Children with FASD walking around with the whole alphabet soup of mental health disorders, ODD, ADD, ADHD, bipolar, you know, the list goes on and on. When in fact, they have fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. They fall within the spectrum. Now you may say, well, so what? The important point is the treatment is different. 
if a child has FASD. Now, let me just give you an example. When you look at a large population of children with FASD, this is another study we did. Uh, see, I think it's important that anything I, I tell you that I tell foster parents, that I tell adoptive parents, it has to be based in science. This is not my hunch. This is information through that has been gathered through very thorough studies. So when we look at large populations of children with FASD, what we find is that 74% do meet criteria for ADD or ADHD. That is attention deficit disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now, I think everybody is aware of that because these kids, you know, their, their behaviors are very dysregulated. And we can talk more about all of that later, but uh, let me just give you an example. Classic ADD or ADHD is a genetic phenomenon. Uh, a child has ADD or ADHD because one of his parents did mild to moderate to severe, but they, they had it, and now the child does. And the basis for genetic uh, ADD, ADHD, is the children are born with low, uh, low levels of dopamine receptors. So if you're low on dopamine, what dopamine is, it's the regulatory center of the brain. So think about it this way. If you're walking along the sidewalk and you come to a street, and you look to see if a car is coming, the image of that car enters your brain, hits the back part of your brain, it's carried by the optic nerve to the visual cortex located in the back of the brain. So flash, there's the car. That message gets transmitted immediately to the prefrontal cortex in the front of the brain, and that's where dopamine resides. So that image of the car shoots forward, to the prefrontal cortex, dopamine fires off and says, stop walking. That's called motor regulation. Children with ADD, ADHD on a genetic basis, as that information shoots forward to the prefrontal cortex, it hits the prefrontal cortex, but there's not enough dopamine there. And so the child just walks out in front of the car. He's impulsive. That's ADHD. Now, the treatment for that is to use medication in the amphetamine class. Amphetamines release dopamine. So what's do what dopamine is there in the prefrontal cortex gets released, and so the child gets better. So you have a child who goes to the pediatrician. He's impulsive. He's running in front of cars. He can't control or regulate his behavior. The pediatrician says, oh, he's got ADHD and that's correct, he puts him on Ritalin and the child actually gets worse. What's going on? Children with FASD have normal or basically normal levels of dopamine in their prefrontal cortex. The damage from alcohol exposure is further back in the brain in the area called the limbic system. Now the limbic system is the part of the brain that takes information, makes sense of it, and transmits it forward to the prefrontal cortex. So the image of the car hits the visual cortex in the back of the brain, flash, there's the car. That information shoots forward 
trying to get to the dopamine to fire it off, but it gets literally, it gets stuck in the limbic system. So when the doctor gives the child Ritalin, which is an amphetamine, he's treating the wrong part of the brain. The treatment has to focus on the limbic system. And there are medications that we use for the limbic system, but more importantly, there are therapeutic interventions that don't require medication. And these therapeutic interventions focus on the limbic system and help children learn to self-regulate. So that's why it's so important to know if your child was exposed to alcohol. And when you explained that in the webinar, that was just especially when you talked about the different parts of the brain and how ADHD, there are the same issues. However, because of the prenatal alcohol exposure, it's a different part of the brain that's not able to transmit that information. When you explain that, it's it's just an aha moment of a reminder of how how harmful alcohol is to an unborn child and especially to the brain. And um, I believe you actually showed slides during that webinar too, that, that just showed the difference. And, and it was just really remarkable to see. I'm so glad you're explaining this because as the mom of a son who has an FASD, he was first diagnosed with ADHD as so many of our children are. And rather than getting to the root of the problem, like you said, when you understand the root the science behind the diagnosis, then you can accommodate, you can treat, and you can understand better. Thank you for for just explaining that as part of it. I know we'll talk a little more about that um, in a few moments. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you said something very important there that I want to point out. When I'm training physicians, what I tell them is you have to look beyond the behaviors you see to understand the brain basis of the behaviors. And so the message for adoptive and foster parents is when you take a child to be evaluated for their ADD, ADHD, you have to look across all aspects of brain functioning, not just focus going with an idea, well, he's got ADHD, so let's just look at the prefrontal cortex. So that gets in what you had mentioned briefly earlier, you know, the different domains of functioning Uh, that really have to be examined. Yes. And I know when a child gets assessed to to see if they have an FASD, um, it is a very thorough assessment. And you do need to look at things like executive functioning, adaptive functioning, things like that, that may not have been looked at when screened for an ADHD, you know, because there are more domains that are affected um, versus ADHD. So let's just talk a little bit about, you had mentioned the behavioral domains in your book. And can you explain for our audience. This is from um, both the webinar and from Guided Growth, but you had mentioned behavioral domains and how they're important when you're looking at FASD. Yeah, we need to look at the whole child. And so, when again, when I work with physicians, psychologists, teachers, uh, and when I work with, with parents, I want them to consider the child across three domains of functioning. Uh, neurocognitive, self-regulation and adaptive functioning, because that gives you, you you don't need to do MRIs in the webinar and in the book, I show pictures of of the brain uh, through MRI tests that, you know, we take x-rays of the brain, Uh, but clinically you don't need that. What your psychologist or physician needs to do is evaluate the child across all three domains. So let's look at them very, 
very quickly. Uh, the first one is neurocognitive. And uh, neurocognitive includes IQ. The great majority of children with FASD and with prenatal drug exposure have a normal IQ. So it's important to do an IQ test, but the great majority are going to fall within the normal range. And so, so often I get pushback when I participate in IEPs at the schools. You know, uh, I'm told, well, he's got a normal uh, uh, IQ. He doesn't need special education services. And that's just completely wrong. Uh, so it's important to get an IQ or an overall developmental score, but you have to look further neurocognitively. And by far the most common deficit across all types of prenatal drug and alcohol exposure so this is for children with prenatal alcohol and or prenatal drug exposure is executive functioning. Now, what is executive functioning? Executive functioning is the ability to plan and complete a task. Uh, it's sequencing. It's, it's being able to connect cause and consequence. A, a simple way that you can look at this at home with your child, uh, any child six years or older should be able to follow a four-step command. So for instance, in clinic, I have a child, I finish examining the child, they're sitting up on the examining table and I'll say, uh, okay, Johnny, uh, jump off the table, go to the scale, go to the door and come to me. Now that's a very simple four-step command. And I'll say, Johnny, what did I say? And Johnny can repeat back to me, these kids have, good short-term memory, he can say, you know, jump off the table, go to the scale, go to the door, come to you. Great, do it. He'll jump off the table and he can't go any further. He knows cognitively what he has to do. He's very bright, but he can't follow the directions. And that's so frustrating for so many parents because uh, they'll say, you know, can you go turn off the porch light? And Johnny will say, sure, and he'll head to go turn off the porch light and he'll never get there. Or he may get to the porch, get distracted by something else and just do something else. So uh, that's executive functioning. And it's a very common uh, difficulty for all the children with prenatal exposures. Another area of neurocognitive functioning is um, memory. Now, if you take your child to the psychologist, most likely you'll get an IQ test, you'll get a memory test, but we have to go further. So if I ask you to tell me your telephone number, those of you in the audience can rattle off your telephone number immediately. But if I give you another task, if I say, tell me your telephone number backwards, there'll be a slight pause there. And what you'll do, some of you will pull your telephone number out of long-term memory and literally post it so you can read it backwards. You're a visual learner. There are some of you who are auditory learners. You'll pull your telephone number out of uh, long-term memory. You'll say it forward very quickly. And then by essentially memorizing it that way, you'll be able to say it backwards. Now, whether you're an auditory or a visual learner, that's called working memory. The ability to take information out of long-term memory and to hold it in your brain to work with the information so that you can resolve a task. 
Children with prenatal alcohol exposure have significant problems with working memory. And then if I said, okay, again, tell me your telephone number backwards, all of you would have to start all over. You would pull it out of long-term memory. You would post it or memorize it and complete the task because you knew knowing your telephone number backwards is not important. Uh, and so you threw it away. You didn't put it into long-term memory. And here is a characteristic of alcohol-exposed children that is not a characteristic of drug-exposed children. And that is the ability to take information out of short-term memory and move it to long-term memory. So if uh, you're a parent and you get a note home from the teacher that says your fourth grade uh, little girl, Susie, uh, is having trouble with her multiplication tables and you need to work with her on her threes. So that night after dinner, you sit down and she's got it. You know, you talk it through, you teach her three times one is three, three times two is six. Wow, that's great. She goes to school the next day. And then that night, you get a note home from the teacher. You're a bad parent. You didn't work with Susie on her threes. What's happened is the children have good short-term memory, but children with alcohol exposure have difficulty moving information from short-term into long-term memory. So the chapter in Guided Growth on Teaching Strategies talks about how you work with alcohol-exposed children to stimulate movement of information from short-term to long-term memory. So those are all aspects of neurocognitive functioning. And again, when you explain this, it's such a wonderful example, you know, to think that, boy, I wish I had this information about 10 years ago. <laughs> but however, I'm so glad that you were, you were sharing it and that I can share it with our listeners because I know there are many listeners out there who have children who are young and who are encountering these problems. So I'm so glad that you're addressing this and that we can talk a little bit more about your book in a second, but how your, your book addresses these issues because we often get information from, you know, other parents or anything. So to be able to have it come from you, Dr. Chasnoff, is just, it's such a relief to know that this is evidence-based. This is based in science. What you're sharing with us, and especially with parents, will be information that will be used and understood. The second domain of functioning uh, is self-regulation. And this is where a lot of the ADD, ADHD, difficulties come from. It's the ability to regulate behavior, regulate emotions, regulate day-to-day -day, um, living. Uh, it's the distractibility that children have. It's the off-task behaviors. And most of that comes from the deficits or the damage to the limbic system that occurred during the prenatal period. And an aspect of uh, self-regulation uh, is something called sensory processing, the ability to take sensory information, taste, touch, smell, hearing, and vision. I had to think there for a minute. I almost forgot the five senses. Uh, how you take sensory information and integrate it so it makes sense and then use it to guide your behavior. And I'll just give you an example. I got a call from a family um, from out of state 
they have a, an 18 month old child and just having enormous problems with sleep and with difficulty going to sleep, frequent waking, you know, sleep is a regulatory issue. And, you know, they had gone to all sorts of people and, you know, uh, tried to let the baby cry herself to sleep and this and that. Uh, let me take an aside for a minute. You do not let a child cry himself to sleep. As an adoptive parent, a whole other issue is attachment. And we don't have time to go into all of that tonight. But your child needs to know that you're going to be there for him or her. So you don't let children cry themselves to sleep. But so what could these desperate parents do? It's pretty simple. I said, go online. Amazon.com has them or go to anybody else and buy, get an infant weighted blanket. Now there are weighted blankets for adults, but those are too heavy. Don't use that. But there are weighted blankets for infants. They, you know, emailed me the next week. It was a miracle. That child was sensory seeking. She needed some kind of sensory input to help herself soothe and calm. So sensory processing is a good part of self-regulation and both alcohol exposed children and drug exposed children have that difficulty. The third domain is probably the most important from our discussion of FASD because this is adaptive functioning and adaptive functioning for children with FASD is different from any other child with any other kind of syndrome or difficulty that you can name. Now let's talk about adaptive functioning. Adaptive functioning is the ability to take information that you know and apply it to daily living skills. So this is just day-to-day -day life. And of all the difficulties, I think the biggest barrier to long-term independence for our children with FASD is in fact adaptive functioning. So what are some examples? Adaptive functioning difficulties are understanding money, understanding a bus schedule, uh, being able to communicate. Now, your child may have excellent speech and language, but can your child communicate effectively? Communication requires not only speech and language, it requires nonverbal cues. So can they hear sarcasm in a person's voice? Can they hear humor in a person's voice? Can they read facial expressions, body language? That's communication. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, we made a documentary movie. It's an hour long documentary movie called Moment to Moment. And it tracks the lives of four young adults ages 16 to 22, all of whom were adopted at birth, all of whom have fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, and all of whom have been my patients since they were born. And so we have worked with the families in the film. Uh, it tracks the young people's lives day to day. And the children represent all aspects of the spectrum of the alcohol, fetal alcohol spectrum. And one of the young ladies you meet uh, is a lovely young lady named Kara. Kara is 19 years old. 
beautiful young lady. She has no, no physical features. You know, she has what would be called ARND, alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder within the spectrum. She has normal growth, normal facial features. She has an IQ of 125. She's very, very bright. But she tells the story of, oh, she's in her first year of college at the time of the film. She tells the story that her mother called her uh, at school and said, Kara, you know, we have an appointment later today. What time can I pick you up at school? And Kara said, just a minute. And she looked at the clock on the wall and it was an analog clock with, with hands. And Kara said, I don't know. I'm going to have to call you back. I can't read the clock. She hung up. She looked at her digital phone, which told her the time, and then she called her mother back. But the issue goes beyond even that. Uh, another example with Kara, uh, Kara was out with friends. She's very social. Uh, she makes friends easily because she's very verbal. She just can't keep friends. And here's an example why. These communication difficulties then head over or affect social relationships. So Carol was out with some friends and one of the girls said, okay, let's get together at four o'clock at Slim's, which is the local hangout, you know. And Kara says, four o'clock in the morning? Well, the girl had said, let's, uh, let's get together at Slim's at four o'clock. And Kara said, four o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the afternoon? And all the other girls laughed. They said, Kara, you're such a card. That's funny, of course, four o'clock in the afternoon. The next time that happened, one of her friends said, let's get together at four o'clock at Slim's. Kara said, four o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the afternoon. They all looked at her and said, Kara, you're weird. And she loses friends. Many parents come to me when I'm working with their adolescents and they say, you know, my child just doesn't have any common sense. And that's what this is all about. Now, where does the whole concept of common sense come from? The first person to describe common sense was Aristotle. And Aristotle said there are five senses. And then the, the sixth sense is the common sense. It's what brings all the different senses together so that you can understand what you're supposed to do. Aristotle didn't know it about at the time, but what was he talking about the common sense? He was talking about the limbic system this structure in the middle of the brain that we've been talking about. And that's the basis for so many of the behaviors that you see. And that is what sounds like it's most affected by the alcohol exposure. Well, oh, that's a, that's a good point. The, so the earliest studies of adaptive functioning, and you can measure adaptive functioning. Everyone knows what the IQ is. The AQ is the adaptive quotient, and there are tests that psychologists can give. You name any syndrome, any kind of neurodevelopmental difficulty, and the IQ and the AQ will essentially match. They'll be the same. Whether it's autism or Down syndrome or whatever, they'll pretty much match, except for fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. No matter what the IQ is, no matter how high or low the IQ is, the AQ will be significantly lower. So that's how we can, you know, when we do these evaluations, that's how we can differentiate uh, drug exposure from alcohol exposure. 
this is how we differentiate autism from prenatal alcohol exposure. Because with autism, the IQ and the AQ are going to be fairly similar. But in fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, the AQ is going to be significantly lower. So the whole point of this, as an adoptive or foster parent, when you go to the psychologist for an evaluation, you have to say, you know, the psychologist will say, okay, we'll do an IQ, we'll do some memory testing, some achievement, academic tests. And you say, no, no, I want my child evaluated across all three domains of functioning. So those of you at home right now, please write these down. It's neurocognitive functioning, self-regulation, and adaptive functioning. So if you can get an evaluation across all three domains, you'll be able to paint a picture of the brain and then figure out where the deficits are and what therapeutic interventions will work and what medications, if necessary, might be used. I will be listing what you're saying, Dr. Chasnoff, in our program notes in today's episode so that our audience members can see what to ask for. So I appreciate that. Before we move on, just a quick question, listening to, um, to you describe this, which again, I- I'm hearing this again for the second time, and it's just making me even think of more questions. Does that explain why the chronological age and the developmental age in a child or in an individual that has an FASD, why that widens as they get older? Yes. Okay. It's really what, what you see, what I see clinically is the neurocognitive deficits and the self-regulation deficits really pretty much stay the same. But then in the late 20s, they start to get a little bit better. So for all you parents- There's hope, okay. There's hope because (laughs) the the prefrontal cortex does mature for everyone from 25 to 30 years of age. So you're gonna see some improvement, but where you don't see that change is with adaptive functioning. And this gets off into a whole other area that many of you are facing, which is your child's behavior online. Uh, Your children are in great danger online of being victims and of being perpetrators. And uh, this has become such an important issue. In the last year or so, I've written, uh, I wrote a booklet for parents on FASD and the online world. Uh, A lot of it is about the brain changes and then how those brain changes affect online behaviors. And the whole last chapter is on the things you can do at home to ameliorate risk. And uh, I know the Canadian FASD Association just reviewed it and gave it uh, very high marks, recommended it for all their, their families. So Natalie will be giving you our website. Uh, you might glance at that. It's very inexpensive. I forget what it is, but it's not very expensive at all. Yes. And if you have an adolescent or, you know, eight years or older, uh, you, you need to be concerned about online behavior. And that's an area that you need to make good accommodations for in security and safety. Just thinking about like, you know, the accommodations we make when our children are younger for security and safety in the physical, it sounds like we really need to be on top of that 
like you said, Dr. Chasnoff, eight, nine, 10, starting that early, because yeah. it, it is sad. That is a sad, sad statistic about how many of our children are victimized and more susceptible to that. So thank you for bringing that up. And we will list that in our program notes. So uh, do you mind, I, I'm sorry. Uh, do you mind if I mention something else along this line? Absolutely, uh, please. Because this is, uh, the, <laughs> these are the things that keep me up at night. The, the other situation I get called into much more frequently than I wish to be is when children with FASD get involved in the criminal justice system. And uh, unfortunately, I've been called into death penalty cases. Can you imagine uh, of a 16 year old, um, they were considering, well, it's a long story, but let me just mention from the early research back in the 90s, uh, it was estimated that about 60% of children with FASDs do end up in the criminal justice system. Now I have to tell you, our rates are much lower for children who have been going through our program all their lives. So, you know, we can, we can pretty much avoid that. But if you are a parent of a child with FASD moving toward adolescence, you need to contact me through our website, which Natalie will give you, and uh, ask me for the American Bar Association's uh, resolution on uh, FASD as a mitigating factor in adjudication and sentencing. We worked with the American Bar Association Center for Children and the Law to develop a guide for uh, lawyers and judges. It was adapted as a resolution by the American uh, Bar Association House of Delegates. And then during the Obama administration, I served on a commission to write guidelines to help courts implement uh, the resolution. What the resolution says is that young people with FASD, FASD should be considered a mitigating factor in adjudication and sentencing, which basically takes the death penalty off the table, takes life in prison off the table, and really points courts more toward amelioration, therapy, etc. Any family with a child or a young adult in their family who has FASD needs to have a copy of that ABA resolution that you can give to the court or to your defense lawyers. Now, because of copyright, we cannot post it on our website, but if you contact me, just ask for the ABA resolution, that's the American Bar Association, I'll be glad to send it to you. There's no charge, we just wanna get it out there. In previous podcasts, we've discussed the Canadian judicial system and how they actually have an FASD court, which is amazing. I think that's so incredible. So to know, Dr. Chasnoff, that you contributed to this in the American judicial system, I think every parent who has a child that has an FASD should have a copy of this. If the circumstance were to happen, you have something that is explains what's going on. That's wonderful. Okay, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Not uh, at you all. Can go, you can go back on track now. That was a that was a good interrupt. Can you just tell me some of the key learning points that you want your readers to gain from this new book, Guided Growth? Sure. 
First of all, let me explain where I am in my career. I've retired from clinical care after 40 plus years. And in this stage of my career, my goal is to get information out into the public, especially to professionals and to foster and adoptive families, biologic families who are raising these children. We want to make things better. That's that's what this is all about. So Guided Growth uh, is my most recent book. And uh, I wrote it with a very talented uh, educator, Dr. Ron Powell. He is, uh, he is retired also. And he was the director of special education for the largest county in the United States, out in California. Very talented and brilliant educator. And we've been working together for several years. And so decided in our so-called retirement uh, to write this book. So it's written, it's, the title of the book is Guided Growth. The subtitle is Educational and Behavioral Interventions for Children and Teens with FASD and Early Trauma. So from just that subtitle, what is that implying? First of all, I want families and professionals to understand that whether we're teaching academics or teaching behavior, it's the same process. And children with FASD need the same teaching strategy in either case. The other point that we make in the book and discuss quite extensively is that almost all children with FASD suffered some aspect of early trauma. And quite honestly, after existing in the womb for nine months, and then even if an adoptive family adopts that baby right at birth, that is a form of trauma. He's been removed from his biological family. And uh, so, you know, there, there are going to be trauma issues also. So what we did, first of all, uh, for the first time that I know of in any kind of publication, we tried to look at FASD from the perspective of learning and incorporated or integrated aspects of the impact of trauma. So what are some of the things uh, we do? One of the first chapters is called, How Does Learning Occur? And so we talk about the brain basis of learning in everybody, typical people, uh, typical children, typical adults, how do we learn? Once you understand how learning occurs, then a further chapter then talks about FASD and the brain the changes that occur in the brain. And then we talk about trauma and the changes in the brain that occur with trauma. And then it goes into what are the behavioral manifestations? What are the learning difficulties? And then the rest of the book is, it consists of strategies for teaching. Whether you're a teacher teaching academics, and it includes things like how, how is the best way to arrange uh, a classroom seating that will help all children, but especially children with FASD, uh, all the way to individual learning strategies for the children, as well as classroom strategies. And that includes, again, it includes not only teaching academics, but teaching behavior. Now, one of, one of the pushbacks I get from teachers is they say, oh, I can't, you know, I can't just focus on one child in the classroom. I have a whole class. Well, let me give you an example. And I think I included this in the book, I don't honestly remember, but um, 
uh, I have trouble making up names. Let's see, we've used Johnny and Susie. So I'll say Jake. This little boy is named Jake. Jake was in, this is a true story. Jake was in third grade and his mother, who herself happened to be a special education teacher, she was his adoptive mother, but in any case, she called and she said, they're threatening to kick Jake out of school because he's so disruptive and they want me to put him on Ritalin and you keep saying, me, me, uh, I keep saying no Ritalin for Jake, he doesn't need it. And the teacher says he's, she's gonna kick him out. So I said, why, what's going on? Well, just recently the teacher, uh, they had been working on reading a book together in class and she said, okay, class, get out your books, turn to chapter five, read the first two paragraphs, and write one sentence as to what those paragraphs are about. So Jake, just like all the rest of the kids, gets his book out, there it is. But then he can't go any further. Remember what we said about four-step commands? And he's looking around, he's asking his friends, what did she say, what did she say? And, she sa and the teacher says, Jake, get your hands to yourself, leave the other children alone. What did I tell you to do? And Jake can sit there and he'll say, you said, get out our books, turn to chapter five, read the first two paragraphs and write one sentence. Good short-term memory. She says, we'll do it. And he can't do it. That's executive functioning, that's sequencing. And so she goes to him and, you know, and then everything escalates and he gets sent to the principal's office. So what do you do in a situation like that? I called the teacher and said, here, please, if you would do this, when you say get out your books and say, turn your books to chapter five, write a five on the blackboard. Read the first two paragraphs, read a two, write a two on the board and write one sentence and write a one on the board. Jake will be able to do it because one of the teaching strategies to get around the deficits that children with FASD show is multi-sensory input. So just letting Jake see those numbers up there will guide him through the process and he can do it. And she's done something that's going to help all the class, not just Jake, and it's very little effort. So the book is full of examples like that, that teachers can use in the classroom and that parents can use at home. Those are wonderful accommodations, Dr. Chesnoff, because they're basically just reminders and they're cues, which is what our, our children need, those cues, whether they be visual, you know. And I, again, I took about 10 pages of notes during that webinar because it, just the information that you're sharing is just so valuable to, uh, to me as a parent and I know to our listeners. So as we wrap up this amazing conversation, first of all, I'd like to ask you back on the show in oh, sure. hopefully in the <laughs> spring. And secondly, um, we like to end our show on what I affectionately call hope takeaways, which is basically words of hope and encouragement that you can give, especially to parents and, and those who are very weary on this journey. We know it's a long journey and we know that we often need to know that there are things that can give us hope. So um, before we end and before, before I share um, your contact information, what can you share for our listeners that will give them hope? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, some of the children that I have followed since birth are now in their 40s. And so I've seen what can be accomplished long term. And of course, 
bear in mind that children are affected to all different degrees and you know every case is individual i but i think a, a good example um i this year for holiday gifts i'm giving out beautiful pens that are handmade by a young man that i started following when he was three years old significant fasd much closer to fas than arnd but uh iq is you know relatively low but but you know his parents worked hard with him and not that there weren't bumps in the road but this young man a couple of years ago opened his own company he's very artistic and he creates beautiful handmade uh, ballpoint pens and so i'm sure i'm one of his best customers but uh, i order from him online and he makes these beautiful pens that come in a, a case. It looks all very professional. And that's what I give out as holiday gifts. Uh, another young man uh, I got who is now 42. Uh, I talked to him just recently. He was born to a mother who had used alcohol and heroin all through pregnancy and was adopted right at birth, pretty severely affected. And I worked with his adoptive family uh, over the first six years, he came to my clinic for some, for a while. He was coming every week. You know, parents worked hard. They did a wonderful job with him. By the age of six years, I said, you know, you're doing well. Why don't you, you know, I don't need to see you back unless you run into problems. Uh, here is a summary of all our work together. Here's what I see happening in his future. And here are the ways to address it. And they said goodbye, and I didn't. I never saw them again. I then went. Uh, this was about two years ago now, so he would have been around forty. I got a call from him, or actually an email. He said, "Dr. Chaznov, you don't remember me, but you know, blah blah blah. Uh, my parents came to you. We last saw you when I was six years old. I'm having trouble. I'm in graduate school, getting an advanced degree in psychology, and I've hit a wall." I made it through college, but I've hit a wall here. And my parents and I got out the report you wrote at six years, because we hadn't looked at it in a long time, and it laid out everything that happened to me. And so my parents said, I should look you up. So with the internet and everything, he found me. So I said, come on in. So he came in, we did an evaluation. Uh, he worked with one of my psychologists and me, and uh, we were able, to give him the kind of support and what he needed. He graduated with his advanced degree in psychology. And then I tried to hire him for my, for my program and I got outbid, I couldn't afford him. He's a very talented psychologist. Uh, so he's, uh, see, I get chills just talking about I, that. That gives me goosebumps too. That's an amazing yeah, story. He's a wonderful young man. So these stories are out there. I told you about Kara before. Um, if you have a chance, look at our film moment to moment. Yes. Uh, because uh, it's it's very true what happens. And Kara, you'll fall in love with Kara. She's lovely. Uh, and she has an art career now. Uh, she's doing really well. As a side note, so many of our children with FASDs are very talented. Yes. From an art perspective. Yes. Uh, we've gotten some kids scholarships to the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, so there, there is hope. Uh, it's a bumpy road. It's difficult. And you will always be at some level or not serving as your child's external brain. 
but be there for them. Understand there are lots of other parents in the same boat as you, which is why I love that you not only have this podcast to bring families together. Thank you. Uh, these are the kinds of, this is the kind of support families need. Thank so you. yeah, there is hope. You, you got to hang in there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And I'm so, I said this, you know, our son is 18. I wish I had this book 10 years ago, but however, I'm so glad that it's available now because I think of all of the thousands of families that this book will help tremendously and not just families, you know, I really hope it gets into the school systems and organizations and, and just places where people can learn and, and make those adjustments and accommodations and learning strategies. So before I end, Dr. Chasnoff, I know I've mentioned before about NTI Upstream. I'm going to share that website. It's www.ntiupstream.com. I would also encourage you to, and your listeners, to just explore the website. There is a ton of information there. There is. Um, some of it free, some of it, of course, for sale. Yes. Um, that your families would be able to use. And I appreciate your website as a resource because it does have not only your books, but just there, there, you explain the philosophy behind, you know, NTI upstream. So it's wonderful. So Dr. Ira Chasnov, thank you so much for being on our show today. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. And I look forward to talking to you again, hopefully in a few months in the spring, okay. we can check in again. Be glad to. Take care and thanks for listening. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.